Please join me at Matthew chapter 7. Back to Matthew 7. Verses 21 to 23 uh, today, as we jump back into our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it feels like maybe we've been trying to finish the Sermon on the Mount for a, a couple months, uh, but uh, we're getting there now, two or three more sermons, including this one. Jesus turns now from addressing the reality of false prophets and false teachers to the reality of false followers, false followers. There is such a thing as spurious faith or a kind of faith that isn't faith. It isn't real. It presents as real, but it isn't saving faith. There is such a thing as a follower of Jesus who doesn't truly and savingly know Jesus. There is such a thing as a self-deceived, a self-deceived confessor. Someone who confesses to know Christ, professes to know Christ, but does not possess Christ. There are even professing believers not actually being believers, but believing that they are the genuine article who will appeal to their knowledge. They will appeal to their doctrine. They will appeal to their experiences. And even, shall we say, to their charismatic activities and accomplishments. But who nonetheless turn out to not have and to not have had a real connection to and relationship with the Lord Jesus to whom they appeal. The false prophets referenced just before our text for this morning, they were deceivers. They were deceivers. But these now, these folks now, we're considering, are self-deceived. There is help here for all who will hear, help to discern one's own confession, one's own profession, to help determine if it comes from actual possession of real faith, from actual possession of Christ as Savior and Lord. And there's help here to discern the confession of others, though always with patience, grace, and humility, and never as a first concern, first as ourselves, but we're called to discern, aren't we? Discern we must. Because as we've seen, there are only two ways, and only one leads to Christ and to salvation, to heaven with God forever. And so here in our text, there are two ways to call upon the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Some call upon His name and do great things in that name, but do not actually know Him and are still in their sins. 
Others call upon Jesus truly as He is presented in the gospel, as He is presented in God's Word, and by God's grace, making the good confession and bearing fruit, they will be welcomed into His presence. What's the difference? They will present the same, at least for a time. What's the difference? Well, let's ask the Lord's blessing, and we'll read the text, and we'll work through it as we do uh, with God's help. Father, thank You for Your Word, and we now ask Your help to understand. What we need most is to hear from You more than, infinitely more than from any other voices. We need to hear from You. And so we look to Your Word, and, and even hearing from Paul that spiritual things are spiritually discerned, we know also that we have to ask Your help, not just for reading comprehension, though we, though we need help with that, but to apply it, to understand its, its impact and import for our souls, for my soul. So we pray that You would bring conviction understanding, application, that you would be praised and that we would be assured, helped, and grown even from these minutes because it's your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 7. 21 to 23. These fearful words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The holy and inerrant Word of God. Uh, three, three points today, relatively brief-ish for me today, but three points. Number one, false words and false works. False words and false works. Here we're looking at the first part of of verse 21 and, and all of 22, which we've just read. So, these are self-deceived confessors. Lord, Lord! And boy, do they get uh, the shock of their existence. So, this would be a… that's a good description, self-deceived confessors. 
The self-deceived confessors approached Jesus with a verbal uh, reverence on that day, that is the day of judgment, and they addressed Him appropriately, Lord, 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 Master, Master. There's some level of knowledge here, perhaps even a great deal of knowledge about who Jesus claimed to be, about His teachings and miracles and such. And more than that, they have an impressive record of spiritual experience, did you note? An impressive record of spiritual expertise and experience. They have prophesied in Jesus' name, preached the truth, perhaps foretold things to come. They have cast out demons using the name of Jesus. They have performed many mighty things, deeds, wonders, using Jesus' name, in His name. Jesus doesn't deny any of their claims. That doesn't mean they're true. It's just not the point. They might be true. His disciples would perform miracles. Whatever the case with regard to these folks' claim to have done these mighty things, at best, and this is the point, their claims are not false but woefully insufficient. Woefully insufficient. So you did things invoking my name. In God's wondrous world, using my name, you saw things happen. So what? You have your reward. And just as in our own day, when people with great words about Jesus and great claims about doing things for Jesus fall away or, or clearly wrongly expect admission to Christ's consummated kingdom, even though Jesus' true disciples can see through these charades, so here in the text of Matthew, and just as tragic, these people take themselves to be genuine believers. They confess, look at our experiences, look at, our, look at, our, look at what we've done for you. So they approach Jesus expectantly with their words of respect and their claims of religious experience, and I guess we could say victories, religious victories, clearly expecting admission to the kingdom. Sometimes they fall, as I mentioned, before the end. Sometimes People who attempt using Jesus' name to do various things get caught before the last judgment. This happened in the Scriptures with those silly sons of Sceva. Do you remember those boys? In Acts 19, the seven silly sons of Sceva are exposed for the charlatans they are. For their pains, they get beaten up and chased down the street by one aggressive demon. These things happen in God's world. They're in the Scriptures. Whether now, though, or on the day of judgment, the false claimants will be exposed. Eventually, 
Jesus will disown them. No matter how many people they've gathered to themselves, no matter how many people they've impressed, no matter how many people they've led astray, eventually Jesus will disown them. I never knew you, he says to such. He will banish them from his presence. Depart from me, he says. And he will dismiss them as workers. Yeah, I see you did stuff, but you didn't work for me. You were workers of lawlessness. Evildoers, evildoers, doing evil things. Their deeds, though they do them in the name of Christ, are actually evil works. There are uh, several ways to be self-deceived, self-deluded about spiritual things. Especially when the person believes a counterfeit gospel instead of the real thing. The kinds of gospels that are so prevalent today in which Jesus is in some significant way presented as different than the portrait painted in God's Word. But even so, the good news about Jesus could be presented well and the call to repent and believe sent out, but even so, it's possible to be self-deceived. For example, it, it's possible to enjoy some sort of unique to you spiritual experience and sort of live in its glow and reference it emotionally or when you share your testimony. At the expense of, certainly reading the Scriptures, but expense of, at the expense of ongoing spiritual experience, trusting, praying, repenting, loving the brothers and sisters, and other sustained practical obedience. It's just all about that feeling I had. That must mean it's true. And you live off of that. It was a moment with no lasting impact, though. It was a mountaintop experience or even a series of experiences. But life eventually went on as before. Where is the change? Where's the proof? Another form of self-delusion, however, is, is evident in our text. It's a little uh, precise, but it's slightly subtle difference. Here, it's not so much that the false claimant, the self-deceived confessor, lulls himself into spiritual apathy focused on a past experience or something, but rather that he mistakes his ongoing loud profession and his supernatural, almost magical formulations and experiences, he, he, he mistakes all of that for true spirituality and genuine godliness. As he, as, he, as he moves further from the Word and further from historic Christianity and doctrinal confession, his experiences and uses of the name of Jesus convince him in an ongoing way that he is a Christian. Grounded, plodding, actual obedience marked by trust and repentance is neglected. 
the pressure of the spectacular has excluded the stability of growing conformity to the Father's will as revealed in His Word. And because this self-deceived confessor seems to be getting results and experiences keep mounting, immediate results sometimes, spectacular results inexplicably, he feels he is close to the center of true religion. There's great fervor, great excitement, great experiences, great success in chasing after these. And so he concludes that he must be saved. He must be doing it right. God's blessing him. God's blessing the church. He leads. Wrong. Wrong. But yet, even so, he's gotten at least one thing right. There is a kind of doing that Jesus is on about, he, that he's been on about. Hasn't he been? Hasn't he been on about obedience? Hasn't he been talking at length about it? And so that's our second point. Our second point doing the will of the Father. This is the back half of verse 21, and now we'll read it with, uh, with context again. Doing the will of the Father. Look at uh, just the, the beginning of our text again. We, we, want, we want the second half of 21, but 21 starts with, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's, here's what we want to make this point. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So this isn't a contrast between doing and not doing. You can't walk away from a text like this and say, Ah, I see. They're doers. What we need to do is not do. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. There is that contrast. Look, 22 if you look there, we're just we're coming, we'll get to that later, but they are doing, and we don't want to do that doing. Did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty works? So, so there's something about their doing, their workers. Oh, lawless. Okay, well, we don't want to do lawless working. Okay, well, that's a start. But look at the end of 21 again. You can't escape that it's not a contrast between doing and not doing. Look, who's the one welcomed into the kingdom? The one who does the will of the Father, His Father, who is in heaven. So we might ask of the text, what then is the essential characteristic of the one who says, Lord, Lord, and is welcomed into the Father, into the kingdom, rather than the one who says, Lord, Lord, and is doing things and is told to depart from me, I never knew you. What, what is the decided essential characteristic of the true believer, the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ? It's not merely loud profession, confession, not even merely correct profession in terms of content, nor spectacular spiritual experiences or victories. 
Rather, the chief characteristic is, in fact, obedience to the will of the Father. True believers perform the will of their Father, consistent with their prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, accompanied by the repentance mentioned in that very same Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our debts. Obedience from faith, from the heart. Your lips are, your lips are saying all the right things, but your heart is far from me, he said to the Pharisees. So, Obedience from real faith, from the heart, necessarily pouring forth from real God-created, wrought, God-wrought faith. They cannot, true believers, forget that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 19-20, Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. End quote. And so true disciples practice obedience by God's grace. The Father's will, His commands, His character, His kingdom principles are not going to be, by the true believer, simply admired, discussed, praised, debated. No, the Father's will is done, including repentance for not doing His will. His will is never or merely theologically analyzed. His will is pursued. His will is done. Jesus is saying that those who truly profess Him, confess Him, Lord, Lord, are not simply those who profess Him verbally, but profess Him in their lives, if you will. Because by God's grace they possess Him, or rather are possessed by Him, have been brought near, have been adopted, have been indwelt by His Spirit. Our saying and our doing must go together because grace, God's grace, changes our hearts and lives. Grace not only saves us from the penalty of sin, it changes our hearts and wants and lives. The great preacher Alistair Begg, current preacher Alistair Begg, quote, the grace of God does not relieve me of my responsibility to be obedient. Maybe we should say that again. That's not the whole quote. That's half of it. Let me just say that again. Quote, The grace of God does not relieve me of my responsibility 
to be obedient. The grace of God makes possible my obedience. End quote. The grace of God makes possible my obedience. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace through faith. There is no obedience that we can render from within ourselves that can save us. But having been saved by grace through faith, the Holy Spirit works in us. And two of the particular messages that false prophets tend to give One, that it's all of grace and no obedience. Never calling people to obedience. Never calling people to holiness. While the other version, the other other example, the other message, the other perversion, others will give a message that is all obedience and no grace. Even building obedience into justification itself, such that we are saved by works or partially by our works, somehow contributing to or filling up the insufficient work of Jesus. But we know better. We Christians, we know better. Or we ought to. If anyone is to be saved... It will be entirely and fully and finally by God's grace alone, by Jesus Christ alone. And we receive it by faith alone. But that grace reigns in righteousness and comes from the Holy God. And so grace and obedience to the will of the Father, go together, necessarily. They must. God's grace necessarily brings transformation with it. And so true faith, the life of God in the soul of a person, is always accompanied by a change of life, growing faith, repenting as we go, bearing fruit, changing desires, desiring to obey, and actually obeying. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. And you have ventured into perversions of Christianity, versions of Christianity which are not Christianity. Now, Doing the Father's will. Our third point, our third point, Jesus' confession and our confession. Jesus' confession and our confession. So then, we can call Jesus Lord and not know Him as Lord. We can call Jesus Lord and not know Him as Lord nor then as Savior. Just as important, it's possible to obey Jesus on many points, to do things in His name and not know Him personally. Jesus doesn't say this to frighten tender Christians or the incessantly introspective disciple. 
who wrongly questions his assurance all the time. He, he would not, Jesus would not want to unnecessarily shake the assurance of his sheep, his people. And so look at how he, he says it. He, 21 and 23 together, let's look at those again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And there, I haven't said it yet, but we should be thinking of the Beatitudes there, the, that last half of 21. We should be thinking of the Beatitudes, the one who does the will of my Father. 23, then I will declare to them, not, not to you, he's speaking to his disciples, right? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Declare. Well, there's Jesus' confession. <clears throat> but first theirs, right? Some people confess Jesus is Lord, but Jesus confesses, which trumps theirs, uh, defines theirs, exposes theirs. I never knew you. I, I never knew you. He, he does not mean to frighten believers. It's to them, not to you, but to awaken those who profess faith without having faith. He stirs up all who know about Jesus without truly knowing Jesus. Perhaps that's you. I never knew you. He'd say to you, if you don't change Come to him. I never knew you. Of course, Jesus knows all things. He's not saying, who are you, by the way? I've never heard of you. I don't know. Where did you come from? I don't know who you are. That's not what he's saying. Jesus knows all things. He knows people's thoughts from a distance, you know. So then, I never knew you means something like, I never knew you as a member of my covenant family. I, I, didn't, I didn't choose you. I didn't, you're not of me. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. I never knew you. Paul says, the Lord knows those who are His. 2 Timothy 2.19 And so to these He doesn't know who don't know Him, He says, depart from Me, is what Jesus, as judge, will say on the last day when He sends these, quote, workers of lawlessness or evildoers away from His presence. This all here is a very high view of Christ. He is presenting His self-understanding, and it is a, a very high what we would call Christology. It's a very high Christology, and wouldn't it be? He himself not only decides who enters the kingdom on the last day, but also who will be banished from his presence, and he himself does the banishing. Enough of this 
Jesus, meek and mild, who doesn't judge and doesn't have things written on his thighs with blood up to his... Right? I mean, we've, we read those texts uh, through Christmas. The God of war against all that defies him. Here he is, Jesus, the judge, not just passively, well, you chose, you know, so I, I'd ha- I hate to do it, but it was your choice. Yes, it was your choice. But he knows you. He, he knows that you don't know him. And he himself casts you out. Jesus will be a very active judge and a righteous one on that day. The highest authority there could be. King of kings and Lord of lords surely includes this. Judge over everyone and all things. Depart from me. Do you think someone will object or resist? Perhaps. But it will be futile. Now we can ask a question as we move to close. Is your profession, your confession, real? Oh, I mean, I I know the words are just like these folks. Lord, Lord. Look at all this religious stuff I did. I know about the Trinity. Got the deity of Christ correct. I own ten Bibles. First Baptist is my home church. Is your confession real? Jesus says, I think if we were to ask this text, all the word is his, but here he is speaking. He says, look at your life, doesn't he? The one who does the will of my Father. Are you living under his lordship? Does the fruit of the Spirit reign in your life, repenting as you go? Is, is the bent of your life a kingdom bent. This teaching doesn't contradict the glorious truth of salvation by grace. I just went through that. If we come before Him today trusting in our own righteousness, though, and we find that we have none, we find that we've not been looking to Christ alone, by God's grace alone, by faith alone, it's time to turn to Him. He loves to save sinners and to do it all We are lost and doomed without Him. And He loves to save sinners. So if you know that your confession is spurious, self-deceived, or has been till now, what are you waiting for? And so I ask you to answer His call to come into the kingdom and to reject the false prophets, the false gospels. Reject that wide way and all that contradicts the true gospel of God's grace in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And here also is the call to reject 
a profession which is merely verbal. Yes, we must say yes to Christ. We must confess Christ, confess with your mouth, and find in Him our Savior and Lord. But that necessarily means living with Him as Lord and living with reference to Him as our Savior and King. Be sure to understand, Christian, that this isn't a call to redouble your efforts. This is a call to truly come to Christ, to come to Him and own Him, know Him, trust in Him fully and alone, and repent of your sins, repent of your efforts to get or stay saved. The question is, do you know Christ? I want to close with a quote before we move to communion. This is a Ryle quote, J.C. Ryle. And it sums up all of this quite well with a piercingness to it. I could have massaged it and translated it into my own language, um, but I thought it sounded pretty great the way it's put down here. So, quote, The lesson here is the uselessness of a mere outward profession of Christianity. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not all those who profess and call themselves Christians will be saved. Let us take notice of this. It requires far more than most people seem to think necessary to save a soul. We may be baptized in the name of Christ and boast confidently of our ecclesiastical privileges. We may possess head knowledge and be quite satisfied with our own state. We may even be preachers and teachers of others and perform many miracles, as the text says, in connection with our church. But all this time are we practically doing the will of our Father in heaven? Do we truly repent, truly believe in Christ, and live holy and humble lives? If not, in spite of all our privileges and profession of faith, we shall miss heaven at last and be forever cast away. We shall hear those awful words, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. The day of judgment will reveal strange things. The hopes of many who were thought great Christians while they lived will be utterly confounded. The rottenness of their religion will be exposed and put to shame before the whole world. It will then be proved that to be saved means something more than merely, quote, making a profession. We must make a practice of our Christianity as well as a profession. Let us often think of that great day. Let us often judge ourselves that we be not judged and condemned by the Lord. Whatever else we are, let us aim at being real, true, and sincere Christians. End quote. For God's glory and our joy in Him, may it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way that You 
call to us through it and make life and raise the dead through it and equip through it, challenge and exhort through it and build up. May there be no sense here today of undermining salvation by grace alone when discussing what must necessarily result, which is loving the Father's will, doing the Father's will from a heart changed by the Holy Spirit, which truly believes, a heart that truly believes, loves the things of the Lord, repenting as we go. Would you work this in those who hear this? Would you awaken to, awaken to new faith, raise from the spiritual dead, and make alive? Only you can do this and do it fully and finally and forever. And we praise you for so great a salvation paid for with the blood of your Son to which we now look, the, the supper consecrated by Jesus Himself to be a help to us and glorifying to You. And so we ask for that help now as we move to experience that together. And we pray that it will be glorifying to You. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.